Stevens with the Center for Higher Education Leadership. I'm the CEO and founder, and um, today we are doing our higher ed podcast around the issue of diversity and inclusion. Today I'm with Melanie Forstall-Lemoyne, who is uh, one of our contributors and wrote an article in our June 15th newsletter on diversity in higher education, creating culturally responsive classrooms. Melanie, can you introduce yourself? Hi, Terry. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, well, I have spent the last uh, roughly 25 years in education, um, a few years as a K-12 special education teacher, uh, and then the bulk of my time has been at the higher education level as a grant writer um, and grant director um, for the Louisiana State Personnel Development Grants, which ran for several years. Uh, and we work directly with school systems um, around some very specific high leverage topics, um, things like data, um, disproportionality, inclusive practices, uh, to help districts, uh, school leaders, teachers um, make better decisions um, that would have an impact on improving the educational outcomes uh, for students with disabilities. Um, after that, I am now a member of the special education faculty at Southeastern Louisiana University in Hammond, Louisiana, um, where um, in teacher preparation, my students are um, duly certified. So they actually graduate as both um, licensed general education teachers and special education teachers. And I do the majority of the uh, special education content. Um, I'm also a writer. I do um, a good deal of educational content. Um, and then in another life, I also write, um, I'm a blogger and writer around um, motherhood, life, health, and humor. Yeah, so that's another topic I'd love to get you in on sometime, <laughs> having just dropped off my son at college. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, um, so uh, this is great because, as I said, this topic is very near and dear to my heart. And one of the things I looked at when I was the provost at Menlo College is the fact that, you know, what 10 years before I started there, so 2005, Menlo College was a majority white institution. By the time I got there in 2015, it was majority minority, and it had an incredibly diverse student body. I mean, we had a lot of international students and students from every kind of background you can imagine. And actually, when I looked at the data, we actually reflected the diversity of California, which I thought was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. But particularly for our faculty who had been there, you know, for a long time, they hadn't really made a transition from, you know, the kind of student body they had before to this new student body that was looking for, you know, materials that were coming from more um, uh, inclusionary uh, backgrounds and so on. And, and we really had to make a lot of changes when I got there around the way we approached our student body. So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and some of the ways we can get in get these kinds of new practices into the classroom for uh, higher ed faculty? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, what prompted the writing of this article for me was that reflecting on the practices uh, currently in the K-12 system, um, we hear it a lot. We hear about, um, you know, culturally responsive classrooms in the K-12 uh, age. And what that means is, as you say, having students see themselves reflected in the school, the school culture, the curriculum. Um, and I think there's a lot of conversation around that in the K-12 arena. 
um, but not necessarily in higher ed. And if we look, as your example you just said, uh, but throughout the country, um, the cohorts coming into higher ed are becoming, thankfully, becoming more and more diverse. So it's time for us to start looking at ways in which we can create these same types of inclusive environments um, at the higher ed level. The needs that the kids have in seventh, eighth grade, even you know, second and third grade, those needs can be reflected in higher ed as well. Um, things are different, obviously they are older. However, we still have to figure out ways to support diverse learners. Um, now, I also come from a special education background. So not only do I have to think about um, cultural inclusiveness, but also learning styles. Um, you know, we, mm -hmm. have, we have kids coming in with different needs and different preferences. And so as instructors, as faculty, it's, it's important for us to think about moving beyond what's comfortable for us and thinking about ways that we can truly support the diverse classrooms um, that we have in our schools today. Yeah. I think, it, you know, and, and to continue, I think it's important, you know, what is my purpose? When I, when I start my day every day, um, my purpose is I want all of my students to connect with the content. Mm -hmm. I want them to have um, the appropriate experience for whatever it means for them. Um, but if I don't do something to make sure everyone has access, um, then I'm not necessarily doing my job. Yep, absolutely. You know, that's such an important thing to, to keep in mind. And, um, you know, one of the things I also tend to focus on because, you know, I, every teacher I know of is, is so uh, purposeful and, and intentional in, in many ways. And yet we also know that there's this unconscious bias that exists and it shows up in the data when we look at, you know, outcomes for students. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role unconscious bias plays and, and how we might be able to start working towards having people being more aware of the biases they have. You know, it, it's interesting that the conversation, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a tense conversation, and I understand, I do understand. Um, but I, I think if we think back, if we take a step back and think about the root of um, unconscious bias and, and, and how what res researchers have found um, sort of its root of where it, it sort of stems from. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it, it's sort of a benign need for our psyche to sort of categorize things, right? Yeah. It just sort of has this, um, we feel better, our internal psyche feels better when things have a box to fit yeah. in. That's mm -hmm. totally understandable. Um, however, when you start adding those social factors and, and, and other things and, and, and um, some experiences, positive, negative experiences, and then we start sort of lumping all of certain things in one box, that's when it becomes kind of tricky. And what I, you know, reflect on when writing this article is that the key to this is, is one, understanding that it happens, and we all do it to a certain degree. But as higher education faculty, the important 
um, thing to remember is for us to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, even gender bias, you know, when, when we think about even at the basic level, when they talk about the male, female in a, a reading class versus a math class, and that, that teachers tend to call on those boys more often, if we just are aware of that, and then say, hey, how about we force ourselves to start calling on the girls mm -hmm. or, or try a different neutral approach, like a random selection. You know, that's always an easy way so that the bias is taken out. It's whichever popsicle stick I pick is who I call on, right? Yes. <laughs> I think there are ways that we, we can address it, but being aware really is, um, is, is the basis of, of trying to make that um, less, have less of an impact in our classrooms. Absolutely. And, and I want to come back to the issue of, you know, students with, who need um, uh, accommodations and accessibility, because I have a son who's got ADHD and, and you mm. know, this is something, although, you know, until I really started digging into these issues of diversity and, diversity and inclusion, I, I was at a tech inclusion conference a couple of years ago, and they had a whole set of panels around neurodiversity because there's so many kids who you know might have be on the uh, autism spectrum but can do really well in tech yeah. jobs and yeah. so um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because I, I do think there's this tendency you know when a student comes to us and needs accommodations we're like oh god you know here we go these kids you know but it really is an issue and and i think we need to be more careful about how we address it it is. Um, and the example I use in my class um, every semester across the board, um, I talk about how our um, sidewalks, the corners, our curbs have mm -hmm. changed. Yeah. And, and I give the ex example of when I was young, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, the curbs were very sharp, very hard, kind of had some metal reinforcement. And you really had to be careful because if you ever tried to ride your bike up that curb, you could forget it. You'd pop a tire. And, <laughs> yep. you know, your, your day was ruined. Yep. Um, and I asked them, think about what curbs look like today. What do you see? Well, they all talk about the curb cutouts, right? Mm -hmm. Those on ramps. Yep. And I give them the history of why we have these today. Okay. And then I make the connection that while, yes, these new, you know, curb cutouts, um, do give access specifically for individuals who may use a wheelchair or a walker or, you know, they come up with all of these ideas. I then go on to say, but think beyond individuals with disabilities. Who else does this help? And then they start, oh, mothers with strollers, aha, um, you know, um, uh, students, you know, pulling their book bags behind them. And then they start mm -hmm. to see that, wow, when we make spaces accessible, it affects everybody. Um, and so I use that as a visual for them to, you know, I'm in teacher preparation, so I'm preparing young people to become teachers. Mm -hmm. So I think about, you know, we have to create, it's not about access to the table, right? Because IDEA and, and everything, we have come far when it comes to inclusion and, and, get, and getting spaces at the table. But mm -hmm. that's not enough anymore. We have to make the curriculum accessible. Yeah. Um, and then as, you know, we gotta create on-ramps. Um, you've gotta have ways for everybody, whether it's English as a second language, um, whether it's a student who needs additional time or a student who needs 
you know, an audio play of the book, whatever it is, but we've got to make curriculum accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. As a higher education faculty member, you know, it's the same thing. Um, my students come to me. I know what the sheet looks like. You know, Dr. Lemoyne, I need extra time on this or I need whatever. And I have to sign off on that, which I do. But for me, what I have to remember is I know what my default mode is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was yep. a born talker, right? <laughs> I talk all the time. I've talked to my, I'm a nonstop talker. So my default mode is going to be heavy in lecture. Mm-hmm. And I need to rethink that. And sometimes I struggle with it because I'm not one, I don't love doing scavenger hunts. I don't love doing, you know, Uh but to make sure that my students have access and, and that content is presented in diverse ways and they have multiple ways to express their knowledge. Um, Those kinds of things that's on me. I really have to work at, at diversifying that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting point. Cause you know, it makes me think about, um, the, you know, design thinking has become a really popular approach and, you know, regardless learning. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, active learning is just such an important component right. of all of this because a lot of times kids are, are hesitant to step forward or, or speak up in class. Um, and, you know, you really have to find ways to engage the entire classroom. And I, I found this, you know, just having, you know, post-it notes and a yeah. board, you know, can, can change a, the dynamic in a classroom very quickly. Yes. Yes. And not everybody feels, you know, I think sometimes we are in higher education, but oftentimes they are still very young mm-hmm. and, and speaking out and, and talking, you know, that's a, that's a, a risk. Not everybody's willing to take. <laughs> yeah. While we love, right. There's always that one or two. That's the first one to raise their hand. It's the first one to ask questions is there their first one. And sure that person makes my job super easy. Um, but I need to be really mindful about making sure those others who don't feel the same level of comfort find a way, find that on ramp that they are comfortable accessing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's, there's so many different ways to approach active learning. I mean, I, I tried, and actually I was just reading an article that was talking about, you know, it doesn't matter exactly what you do. It's that you change it up. It's that you don't do the exact thing every single class meeting. Um, And, you know, especially for these kids who are coming from different backgrounds, you know, I was a first generation student and, you know, I, and, you know, kids are, you know, working a lot. They're, they're doing so many different things now. And um, I think it's really important to find ways to, you you don't want them sitting there falling asleep. (laughs) You know, and you know, even at Stanford, there were classes where I was, you know, I was falling asleep. You know, I was working at least twenty hours a week and right. running track and doing all kinds of things. And and so, you know, it, it actually including some moments in the class where you let the kids stand up and move around a little bit and yes. and start talking to to each other, um, yeah. so that they aren't just constantly hearing from you lecturing. I think there's so many different things you can do. And, and, um, you know, the reality is it's not that just our students are becoming more diverse. There's more pressures on them. They're worried about student loan debt. 
um, they're working a lot, you know, they're, they're trying to take a lot of classes at the same time so they can graduate quickly, you know, things like that. And, and it's really on us to make sure that they get the best possible opportunity to, to perform their best. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one last thing um, I want to talk about is um, just, you know, how do we really get to, so we've talked a lot about kind of the, <clears throat> more broad approaches to teaching, but how can we engage teachers in this process, uh, you know, professors in a way that um, gets them to really understand the importance of these types, types of approaches? Well, I know in our case, I, I'm, I'm lucky that we have a, um, a dynamic faculty um, and we do have, um, I hate to always rely on professional development, but we do. Mm -hmm. um, we've got some um, great, um, faculty members who have gone on to pursue very specific things um, around um, different professional development options and, and they're bringing that back to us. Um, you know, I know, unfortunately, sometimes uh, the opportunity for PD has gotten so limited in education. Um, you know, we're, we've sort of, the demand has increased, but the time to really hone our own craft is, um, is, is, is diminishing. For me personally, it is um, just not only seeking it out on my own, but also just through my writing, you know, exploring different ideas and, and doing different things. And I also tend to seek a lot of feedback from my students, mm -hmm. um, not just the formal student opinion of teaching, you know, that comes out um, at yeah. the end of the semester, but I really want to know from them, what would you have liked to have seen more of, less of, what can we do different? Um, and then, you know, I guess I feel the responsibility is on my shoulders as I'm preparing these teacher candidates um, to use these types of tools and techniques. Um, and knowing what's going on in the school districts, um, right. at least for me, because yes. I'm in higher, I mean, because I'm in teacher preparation, you know, right. it's important for us to see, are we, you know, aligned with what's really happening in the K-12 schools. Yep. Um, if not, then we need to do a better job of preparing our teachers. I think we are. We're doing a pretty good job of preparing them um, to what is going to be expected of them in um, in, in the K-12 setting when they graduate. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're going to continue this discussion at some point because one of my big things is we really need to see more of a connection between K-12 through and higher ed. And I've actually been working on that, you know, myself when I was provost at Menlo College and yeah. when I was at UT Austin. You know, I really tried to reach out to the K-12 space and, you know, school superintendents and, and teachers and so on because, you know, it's, if we, if K-12 and higher ed don't start teach, talking to each other more, it's, it's almost like, it's so strange that we don't, <laughs> I don't understand yeah. it. But anyway, I, that's, we could spend a whole half an hour just talking right. about that. <laughs> so, and, and yes, but I, I really think we, we should consider, you know, doing an article on that as well for, for our newsletter readers, because it's really something that higher ed leaders need to be thinking about more. And mm -hmm. the other thing you touched on is the whole issue of professional development, which is of course what Shell is all about. And, um, one thing we're trying to make sure is, is that, um, you know, we, we, we have a system where professional development is, is accessible, sustainable, and scalable. Because, you know, as you're saying, you know, faculty don't necessarily have time. And a lot of times these professional development opportunities, you have to fly somewhere, you have to give up right. a weekend. And, and, you know, we're really hoping to be able to create something that is 
effective but easily accessible. And you know, it's something I talk about a lot because I, I really wish I had had this kind of a resource when I was a vice provost and a provost. Um, something that I could do, you know, at lunchtime. I can sit and right. read, read articles and listen to podcasts and, and get a better sense of what's going on out there. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Oh, <laughs> great. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, I think we'll wrap it up there. And um, I really, really appreciate you taking time uh, to do this podcast. And I want to remind everybody that we are um, we, you have uh, subscriptions available at www.higheredconnects.com um, and just click on the join button. You can also check out uh, our uh, newsletter there and our various other op options. We have communities, we have, uh, we're developing um, mentoring um, and of course we have this podcast and we have our online course, Higher Ed Administration 101 that's going right now. We've got over 60 participants. And so, you know, this has really been a great resource for a lot of folks and we hope you'll join us. Thanks again, Melanie. Thank you for having me, Terry. Okay, have a great day. Bye-bye. And thanks to all for joining us. Have a great day. Bye-bye.